Ta-da. Hey, did you guys bring your Bibles or did you pack them in your bags already? You packed them in your bags. Uh, that's all right. I'll forgive you. We're going to be in the book of Jonah. Surprise for those of you who didn't pack your Bibles away. Uh, open up to Jonah. We'll be in chapter 4 as we look at the end of this story. It's been, uh, it's been an interesting story. This is one of those uh, stories that you don't often turn to of the, of the minor prophets, which there's a bunch of books with just a couple chapters in them. Uh, each of them, just when God is speaking to people and, and what it does for us in the Old Testament is to look back at the way God dealt with people. We see God's heart exposed for his people, the people that he created. I love that line in there as he goes, how did I make you? Did I just make you up? No, I looked in the mirror. And as we go back to that creation uh, timeline and we look back when God created the earth, the stars, the sun, the moon, they reflect his character. We reflect his person. We are the image bearers of Christ. We are the image bearers of God. He, he didn't just make us up. I heard a comedian one time who was like joking kind of about like imagining what it'd be like when God created everything and he's like cracking himself up. He's like, uh, let there be a yellow spotted horse with a big long neck, you know, like trying to make giraffes. And like, it's like, like that's the way God's making stuff up and he's just spitting out craziness, right? And you look around and you see it. But it shows his creativeness. It shows the, the vastness of the way that he can just make diversity uh, all across his creation. And yet, none of us are the same. Looking across this room, it's not like, you know, we talk about doppelgangers. I was talking to Derek, uh, the guy who played keys. Didn't the band do a great job, by the way? Let's give the band another round of applause. Excellent this week. Good job, guys. I was talking to Derek, and when I first saw him, I was like, do I know you? Have you ever done that? You see someone, you're like, do I know you? And it's like you think you know them, they look familiar, and you have like a doppelganger, someone who kind of looks like you. But the reality is there's no one who's exactly like you. And that's another way that just kind of blows my mind when we think about how many people there are on the earth. Just in this room alone that no two of you are like, hey, you're the one that looks like me. You know, there's no one like that. Like they, they might look kind of the same. You might get confused. But there's no one who's you. And, and the reason why I say that is because even if they looked exactly identical on the outside, there's more to you than just the way you look on the outside. And that's what I want to get into tonight that there's, or this, this morning. Is there's more to us than just the way we look, um, and we want to get down deeper than that. And so let's take a look at Jonah, which will lead us into this conversation. And I'll read it for you uh, since many of you didn't bring your Bibles, but that's okay. You can bring them next time. It says this in chapter 4. It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. This guy's like, you did something awesome, just Take my life. Like, how messed up is this guy in his head right now, right? It says, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. Then the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. 
He wanted to die and said, it would have been better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, he's like a little baby, right? He acts like a little child. He says, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And so what we see in here is really what it comes down to is the heart of God. And that's what I want to talk about. We have been given this, this heart of God, whether we admit it or not. And I think all of our life, if we were to be genuinely honest, we are either lining ourselves up with the heart of God or we're running away from it. I think Jonah is a story that shows us that in stark contrast to someone who would line themselves with what God would want, someone who would go the other way, literally go the other way. Um, I know some of you guys, some, I heard some stories, we're looking at maps of Jonah or, or Nineveh and trying to figure out the story and things like that, and it's, and it's literally like, uh, like the city is this way, and then he goes like, I'm going to literally go the exact opposite direction to Tarshish. Um, and so we, we have that choice in our life. And, and in a big sense, we have that choice. But then on a daily sense, we have that choice to align ourselves with the heart of God or to go against the heart of God. And, and this is what I want to talk about because it raises this question that says, well, then what is the heart of God? And we see through all, all, out, all throughout Scripture that it says this, that the heart of God is that none would perish. And I think this story in Jonah shows us that. I want to take you to the book of Romans and share some stuff with you uh, in Romans that will kind of bring light to this. And it's in Romans uh, chapter 10, and it says this. <clears throat> it says, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Even the disgusting Ninevites, even the disgusting backyard gnomes. How then can they call on him, the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? He says, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so in, in Romans here, as, as Paul's making this case to the Roman church, uh, speaking both to Jews and Gentiles, he's making this point of going, we have to believe in Christ. But how can we believe if we don't even know about him? How can we know about him if we've heard about him? And so therefore hearing about the, the good news so that we can then know and believe, there's this progression. He goes, then he says, so then how beautiful is it then if we need to believe and we can't believe unless we know and we can't know unless we hear, then how beautiful is it when someone tells us? How beautiful is it for us to be a hearer of, of good news so that we can then know, so that we can then believe? And that's the story of Jonah. He goes, how can these Ninevites believe in God unless they know about God? How can they know about him unless they hear about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone goes and tells them? So God says, Jonah, go tell them because they need to hear so that they can know, so they can believe. And Jonah, even knowing that he's a God who doesn't want anyone to perish, who's slow to anger, who's compassionate, full of mercy and grace, 
in his own heart hated these people and didn't want God to show mercy on them. And so that's why he went the other way. God bless you. So he went the other way. And so this is where we find that story. So we know that the heart of God is that everyone would know, so everyone would hear, so everyone can know, so everyone can believe, so that none would perish. That's the good news that Jesus wants spread. And so he goes, so how do I do that? Do I write it in the sky in the clouds? No. Do I make the trees spell it out? No. Now God can be seen, his, his majesty, his goodness and greatness can be seen throughout creation. But Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross isn't spelled out in the sky. The, the price that Jesus paid, surrendering his own body, living a perfect life, loving us even to death on a cross, and then dying for us, and then through the power of God raised from the dead, that story, which is how we receive forgiveness, can't be spelled out in the trees. It can't be written in the sky in the clouds. It's been given to us to go and tell others because we've been made in the image of God. We're the ones who have the minds and the hearts and the voices to go and share the good news. So it's our job to go and do it. We are God's plan. We are his plan A. And we talked about uh, the whiteboard. We won't bring it up today. But on the whiteboard, as we looked at it, when it goes across and you saw, you know, then Jesus does this and he goes to the ground and he goes up and it's like, Yee! and then he's like, I'm going to come back. And then we're here in this church age, right? We are the church, not a building. I drew a building as a symbol of, of us. But the reality is, is that symbol is not a building. It's a group of believers. We are the church, not a church building. The church building isn't going to proclaim the good news of Jesus. The people in it have to go out of it to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And that's what he's called us to do. To not take this good news for ourselves and go, sweet, now I don't have to suffer death. Now I get to live forever. Now I have forgiveness of sins. Now I can have joy and grace and mercy and peace. But I don't want to give that to anyone else because it's uncomfortable to talk about it. But I don't want to tell anyone else about it because I don't know what they're going to think about me. This is good news, and when we realize that those people are going to be destroyed without it. It's awesome when Maddie said, like, is there someone you know that needs to know this story? Is there someone you know? Pray for them. I thought of my dad. And the funny thing is, the irony of this whole story has been I've been praying for 23 years. God put someone in my dad's life, and 23 years later, he put me back in his life. And a part of me is like, not me, someone else, even for my own dad. But the reality is, is I, I don't care. I just want him to know. And, and that's the reality. So when I read a story like this, it's convicting to me too to go, there's no way. 23 years of going, I don't know, man. I, I know him. I don't think it's going to happen. And then doubt creeps in. But yet then I go, but I know God can do it. And so I pray to that end, and I ask, God, I don't know how, but somehow, please. And then God goes, okay, I'll send you. I'm like, oh, man, seriously? So here's what it is. So how do we then do this? So if we've been given a good message, and we're the ones who are supposed to do it, we are God's plan A. There is no plan B. It's not like, well, if those humans that I created fail, then I'll send the birds. It's like, that's not his plan. We are his plan A, and there is no plan B. He wants none to perish, that all would come to repentance, and we're the ones who are supposed to carry that plan out. We're the ones who bear the message of God. 
And Jesus says in his own words, it's better that I go so that a helper will come. And so Jesus goes back to sit at the right hand of God and sends the Holy Spirit to literally live inside each of us that have received the forgiveness of God. And we have the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we walk around like it doesn't matter. And we walk around like we couldn't change somebody's heart. You're right, you can't. It's the Spirit of God in you. It's the truth of God's Word. It's the Spirit that compels them. But we're the ones who are supposed to share so that they can hear, so that they can know, so that they can believe. And so how do we do that? Here's how I think it is. In Colossians chapter 3, it says this. Colossians is one of those books. I have the hardest time finding it. Oh, there it is. Colossians 3, verse 17 says this. It says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, in word or in deed. So that's it. That's the formula. If you're looking for a formula, write that down. Word plus deed. It's what you do and what you say. It's not just what you do. Some people will grab onto this quote a lot of times. I think it's always attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Like every good quote is attributed to him, whether it's his or not. Um, but he says, like, preach Jesus at all times. And if you need to, use words. And I think that's a great thing because we go, great, so I can preach Jesus and I don't have to talk. And it's like, that's not the point of the quote. The quote is, is that your life should be a reflection of who God is. That everything about you should shine out that truth. Every deed you do should speak and preach and teach and show Jesus. His love, his mercy, his grace, all of those attributes of him. His goodness and greatness reflected in you. And yes, you should also use words. But it's, the, the quote was meant to flip it around of saying that if you're going to be preaching Jesus, you should also be acting like Jesus. And we took it to say, oh, I only have to act like him. I don't have to actually share the message. And we're like, no, that's not the point. We flipped it upside down. We have to live it and proclaim it. We have to give thanks to God for all that he does in our life. I'm going to walk you through some scripture here, and then I want to share a story with you that I hope paints that picture. I'm going to go back to Romans chapter 12. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. In Romans chapter 12, <clears throat> it says this. Therefore I urge you. So in Romans, Romans is like this. It's a great book. If you really want to get into a book that really helps you understand the full measure of the gospel, here's the context for Romans. Rome was the country that, that murdered Jesus, basically, that put him to death. They were in charge over the, most of the known world at the time. The Jews were living under Roman authority. So they appealed to Pilate and them to crucify Jesus because they weren't even allowed to do it themselves because Rome was the ruling authority. And after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension back into heaven and the Holy Spirit came upon the church and they started going out and stirring things up, he writes this letter to the church that had started in Rome. As they began to preach the good news of Jesus and thousands of people started to receive it and go, the, that Jesus we heard about, the Messiah, the one who did the miracles, that Jesus, 
We surrender our life to him and thousands of people came to know him and be baptized. And so this church starts in Rome. And so then he writes this whole book of Romans to them. And he goes through chapter by chapter by chapter, just dismantling false conceptions about Christ from a Jewish perspective, from a Gentile perspective. So what was made known to man was that what we thought was just for the Jews, Christ came to go, no, it's all the world. The Jewish nation was brought into God as his chosen people to be a reflection of who he was so that the world would know who God was so that the world could come to God. And some of the Jews were going, no, it's just for us. And he was going, no, it's not just for you. It's for everyone. And so as he goes through chapter by chapter by chapter dismantling this, he gives us all these things that you need to know. And then he gets to chapter 12, and he's going, so then, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then he goes on to talk about not conforming to the world, but being transformed. The way that we act should look different. The way that we talk should look different. That we should not conform to the way the world around us influences us, but rather we should be different. We should be holy, which means set apart, different, special. We are to be holy, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind according to Scripture, the truth that we know in God's Word. And then he goes in, all down to verse 9, and he says this, and he tells you how to do it. So you go, okay, that's great. The idea is I should be transformed. Okay, good. Now how? And then he continues and he says this. Love is the, core, is the core of it. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse like Jonah did. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil like Jonah wanted to. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. That's how, why we reflect Christ, so that there's no mar on our testimony about who God is. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Great. There's a list. And this is what we tend to do. We tend to take the list and we write it all out on a little note sheet. We put little boxes next to it, and we start checking them off. And then we go, yep, check, 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 check. I'm holy. And it's like, no, transform your mind. Don't make a list. Use the list to guide your heart. Use the list to measure yourself against. This is the straight line that you compare your crooked life to so that you can straighten out your crooked life. It's not a checklist of do's and don'ts. Don't legalize Christianity. Don't legalize and listify what God has called us to do, but turn it into a way of life. And that's what he calls us to do. And don't go back to the old self. I've got a little video. Anna, do you have that video? Watch this. Like father, like son. Check this out. 
This is my youngest. This was uh, just down the road. We were doing a, a community meal, and it started raining, and everybody went into the pavilion except him. <laughs> and we let him. <laughs> Can I have some ice cream now? I do that because that was me when I was a kid. That, I watched my son, and he's the image of me. And I see in the way he acts and the way he thinks and what he does. I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's another one of me out there. Um, when I was a little kid in our yard, I lived in Mississippi. I grew up, and we, w- we lived near the Gulf of Mexico. And these, it's warm waters in the Gulf of Mexico, and so these storms come in, and they bring just torrential rain. You guys get similar storms here, but in three years of living here, I didn't see a storm maybe once that kind of compared to the warm, heavy downpour rain that we would get. You'd smell it coming for like 20 minutes, and you're like, ooh, open up the doors, open the windows, get a chair and go sit on the porch kind of rain, where it's just like pouring off the roof and like just there's a spout of water coming down and everything just gets soaked. That's where I grew up. But it it rarely ever like lightning and stuff, so we'd go out and play in it. So it was like, rain, sweet, and we'd go. And in my house, the way that it worked was my backyard had this ditch that ran through it. We had about an acre of land, and the back, like, third of it, there was a ditch cutting right in the middle of it. And no big deal. But then somebody bought this, like, sunflower field across the road, and they leveled it, and then they built this giant subdivision. And the subdivision went in and then went out in a giant circle, and then they made drainage for the entire thing, and then they built houses on it, like 90-something houses, this huge community across the road. And all the water from that entire community funneled out in my backyard now. It used to be in the ditch on the other side of the road. Now it came out in my backyard. When it would rain over there, imagine like 20 acres of water shooting out in my ditch. So it would come out of the drain. There'd be a pipe. It would literally come out of the drain and shoot up when it came out because it would hit the water that had already filled up and there's nowhere to go but like shoot up. And it would just be this torrent of water in my backyard and we're like, sweet. So we go get our trash cans and take the trash bags out of them, and then we go set it on the edge of the ditch. So like this is the edge of the ditch, and then we get in the trash can, and we put the lid on, and our friends would then like lift the handles up so it'd like lock the lid on, and then they'd like kick us into the ditch. And then we'd like go into the ditch, and you'd like hold on to the sides of the trash can like this, and you'd float down the ditch, and they'd run down the side of the ditch waiting for you. But trash cans have that little hole in the bottom to let the like stuff out so the water would start coming in and it would start filling up. And so you'd have to get out before it got to where you couldn't get the trash can out again. So you're sitting there, and if you, like, punched on the top of the lid really fast, the handles would fly off and the lid would fly off. And then you'd, like, pop out of the trash can, and you'd be bobbing down the creek like this. And then you'd reach out, and your friends would grab your hand, and then they'd pull you over to the side. And then somebody would run down and grab the lid, and we'd run back to the front of the ditch, and we'd do it again. And we would do that the whole time it was raining. So this is, this is my childhood. So when you see my son doing that, you're like, yeah, like, father like son. So we would do this, and then we would just be soaked. So like one of you guys said, oh, man, I bet that was a fun car ride home. Like this was in our yard, so there was no car ride home. But this is the situation was we didn't go to the house because it's like done. We're soaked. We're muddy. There's like mud in our hair. Everything on us is just drenched. And then we come up to the house, and we knew mom was not letting us in the house like this. So we have to take everything off and then go run into the house, jump in the shower, rinse off. And then after we got all dry and warm again and got all the mud out of our hair, we'd go back outside and we'd get those wet clothes and we'd pull them back on and, you know, stretch out that shirt and like, uh, 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 and try to get, do you think that's what I did? Heck no. 
I go put on some fresh, warm, dry clothes. Because have you ever gone to the beach or been at camp, like summer camp, where you like go to the pool and you have your, sw- your swimsuit, then you take it off, and then, then you go and you use your next swimsuit. But after like three days, all your swimsuits are wet. And then you're like, I want to go to the pool really bad, but all I have is wet swimsuits. And then you got to do the like, uh, uh, right, to get it back on. And it's just like, uh, and it's miserable. No one likes putting on old wet clothes. And that same concept, I love that mental image because this is what the Bible talks about. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, he paints this picture that this is what I think of when he says it. In verse 20, if you're, if you're in scripture, he says this. He says, that, however, is not the way that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, your old dirty, muddy clothes, which is being corrupted by us deceitful desires, to be, to be made new in attitude of your mind and to put on the new self, the new clothes, the warm, clean clothes created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he goes on to say, then put off falsehood, stop lying, stop doing this, stop doing this. These are not the kinds of things that you should do because those things are dirty, muddy clothes. You've been washed, you've been cleaned. Don't go back out in the backyard and grab those muddy pants and put them on. Uh, it's gross, right? In the same way, that's what we do. We've been forgiven, we've been made new, we've been washed clean, and then we go back out and we go, you know what? But those muddy clothes, they were so fun, but they're gross, they're dirty. We're not supposed to put them on again. We are to look spiritually, not just on the outside, but on the inside as well, because we are turning our back on those old muddy clothes and going, I'm not going to go back to that. And as silly and as gross as you physically feel putting on dirty, muddy clothes once you've gotten warm and dry, is spiritually what you're doing when you go back to your old ways, when you go back to using that language that you swore you wouldn't do anymore. You go back to the things that you said, God, I don't want to do this anymore. And then you find yourself doing it again. When you say, God, help me, free me from this. And you're like, thank you, finally. I feel free of this, no more guilt, no more shame. And then we go back to it. In our relationships, in our private, when no one else is around stuff. In all those ways, there are those things that are like those dirty, muddy clothes. And we go back to it. And when we do that, it's not only illogical, just from a a pure, like, think about it, and it's dumb idea, but spiritually, it's wrong for us to go back to it. To not wear the old clothes. We are to be made new and reflect Christ. Those things are the things we've put off. We are now to put on the new self. So that's why we look at scripture. Is to go, okay, these were those ways that I have to turn my back on. These are these things I now have to adopt. I now have to make a part of who I am. And so that's what the, the life of a believer looks like. And as you do that, you are transforming not only sometimes the way you look outside, but more importantly, the way you are inside. You're transforming your mind to go, okay, that's something I need to put away. This is something I need to put on. And think of it that way. Dirty old clothes, fresh clean clothes. What does the Bible say that is dirty that I need to put away? What does the Bible say that is clean that I need to put on? And we use that not as a list of going, yes, 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 I did those, so therefore I am holy. It's not about that. It's about us being transformed so that our life shows others the goodness and the greatness of God so that they would know 
so that they would hear. And hopefully when they ask, what is different about you? That we don't go, well, look at me. No, then we proclaim the truth. All of this is a result of my heart being changed by God because of a man named Jesus. Let me tell you about him. He died for me. And through his death, I was forgiven of my sin. And I realized that I needed to put off some stuff and I need to live a different life because he's now my Lord. Not my desire, not my passion, not what I like, but what he says is good and great. I now live like him. And so that's the way your mind is transformed. That's the way it all works. And my mom, I love it because my mom would do that too as we'd come up and we'd try to go in the house and she'd be like, not in those muddy shoes, not in those dirty clothes. Those don't belong in my house. And in the same way, God, when he looks at us, he's like, what, what are you wearing? Is that mud on your feet? Where'd that come from? This has no business in my house. We are the temple of the Lord. And there's no business of that stuff being in his house. And we have to have that mindset. And that's how we discipline ourselves. When we are disciplining ourselves, then we are disciples. We are discipling, we are disciplining ourselves, our mind, our body, our actions, our thoughts. And we are taking them captive and we are saying, through Christ and his strength, not because I'm so awesome, but because his grace and mercy and through his love and through his strength, he compels me. And as I walk this journey with Christ, I become more and more like him because I admit that I need him. I admit that his ways are better than mine. And I begin to look more and more like him as I take each step. And as I stop putting on those old clothes, I stop going back to them and I start putting on the new clothes. And I live a life that pleases God. That's what he calls. So here's what I want to leave you with is this. There's a story in the Bible in Mark. This is Jesus teaching uh, as someone came to him. And he says this. this. I think this story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but Mark uh, records it in a way that I think is cool. It's in chapter 10. <clears throat> and it says this. Where is it? Yep, there we go. Verse 17 of chapter 10, if you're there. It says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this guy runs up to Jesus, and he knows he's a teacher, and he calls him good, and he's asking him for the way to eternal life. So he recognizes who God is and asks him, what do I have to do? And the first thing Jesus says is, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. This is another one of those ways. There's times where if you really look at Scripture, Jesus is a little cheeky. It's, I think this is Jesus' way of going, are you saying I'm God? And he's like, no one's good except God. You just called me good. So are you saying I'm God? And I think that weights what he says next. And then he says, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and goes, it's really hard for somebody who has wealth to get to heaven. Now, when he said that, he didn't mean rich people don't go to heaven. 
What he means is people who have wealth, a treasure that they want to hold on to that they're not willing to let go of. It's hard for them to get into the kingdom of heaven because we have to be willing to let everything go for God because he is Lord, not us. And so if Jesus were to, if you were to run up to Jesus and go, Jesus, what do I got to do? And Jesus were to say one thing you lack, what would he say next? What's the one thing that you need to go and do? For this man, it was go and sell your treasure and give it to the poor. Because what that would have shown is that obeying me is more important to you and that this treasure is not the greatest thing in your life and that for the sake of the kingdom and eternity, you'd be willing to let it go. And this guy went away sad because he wasn't willing to let it go. So the last thing I'll leave you with is this. What is it that you're having a hard time letting go? What is your treasure? Because that's what Jesus is calling you to do. What's that thing you're still holding on to? Ah, I'm not going to let that go. If Jesus said, get rid of that, would you go away sad? I want you to really think about that question and put that into, into some conversation as you guys go back to your cabins because making those decisions now and then doing that in a, in a group that will support you and encourage you, having someone there to go, hey, a week later, remember when you said this was that thing you were going to work on because you felt like God was telling you you need to let that go? How's that going? How can I pray for you? Your counselors are there to support you and encourage you, to check in on you. We do this as a community not in isolation. He called us to be the church, which is the body of believers. The, the Bible talks over and over again about the church being a body, not just a hand, not just an eye, not just an ear, but a whole body. And none of us are the whole body. We need all the parts. And if we walk away from here knowing that, the tendency when you hear this, okay, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, is that you get, you get so focused on doing it yourself. And it's not about doing it yourself. It's about surrendering not only to God, but to the greater community to go. I can do this with the support of all these other people who love and care about me. And I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be real because I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of being fake. And I want to live a genuine, honest life so that people will see the transformation in me and know my God. There's two more, there's two more solas that I didn't tell you about last night. There's sola scriptura. And sola Deo, sola Dea Gloria. It's scripture alone and to the glory of God alone. And if you live the rest of your life with those two, we receive the salvation of God through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We live out that salvation according to the scripture and the word of God, and we measure and weigh ourselves against that because that word was given to us to show us how it is that we are to live our lives. And we do it all, not for our own glory, but for the glory of God alone. Sola Scriptura, sola Deo Gloria. According to God's word, for the glory of God alone. And if we can live our lives with those principles in mind, that's what is guiding the church. Not for our own internal salvation and glorification and our own pride and look how good I am, but for the greater good of the message of God that none would perish. That's where we started. What is the heart of God? When we come back to it, it's that none would perish. I have that. And I'm not just going to keep it to myself. If you have that, don't keep it to yourself. So start working on yourself so that you can share that message in word and deed. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this weekend. I thank you that you brought every single one of these uh, campers here.
I thank you that you've made a way for them to be here this whole weekend, to hear this message, to be a part of this community, to share in their cabins, to build relationships and friendships and memories that will support and encourage them as they go into this world that will fight against them, their own flesh and their desires that they will have to do battle with, with your spirit and your word, Father. I pray that you would empower each and every one of them as they go out of here and remind them that you are with them, that they are not alone, that you have placed a church and a body of believers around them, and that together in unity, as you prayed for your church, that they would be unified. Father, I pray that each of us would see ourselves as a part of your greater plan, and may we do our part for your glory, according to your word, because of what we receive through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus.